Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. As we approach 7,000 downloads, I want to thank everyone who has stayed with me through the death of Stitcher and continue to follow my podcast. I'm thrilled to be back behind the keyboard and microphone after CrimeCon, and I'm developing plans for my premium podcast and some actual YouTube videos where I discuss different aspects of true crime. I appreciate the continued support and the reviews, ratings, and word of mouth that is helping new listeners find the podcast. Thank you, and let's quick cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. If you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The first official kidnapping for ransom in America occurred on 1874 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Two men approached two brothers who were playing in the front yard of their upper-class home and offered to give them a carriage ride to buy candy and fireworks. 100 years before stranger danger, the boys climbed into the carriage and four-year-old Charlie Ross would never be seen alive again. His kidnappers released his five-year-old brother but held Charlie for ransom that was just shy of half a million dollars in today's money. While the kidnappers had assumed the family had a lot of money, they were in fact deeply in debt due to a stock market crash that had occurred the previous year. The family lacked the money needed to pay the ransom and notified the police of the crime. Eventually, communication between the suspects and the family stopped, and the two prime suspects, Bill Mosher and Joe Douglas, were jailed on other crimes. After they were released from jail, they broke into the home of a judge and were shot by a posse led by the judge's brother. Mosher was killed instantly, but Douglas lay mortally wounded for two hours, and according to witnesses, he confessed that he and Mosher had kidnapped Charlie Ross, and Mosher killed the boy shortly after the kidnapping. While their crime was unsuccessful, it would unfortunately be a crime repeated many times over the last 150 years. One of the most famous kidnappings, the abduction of the Lindbergh baby, prompted the federal government to declare the crime of kidnapping across state lines a federal crime and paved the groundwork for the current role of federal law enforcement in assisting in cases of child abduction and kidnapping for ransom. There are different motives for kidnapping. Sometimes there's a sexual motivation behind the abduction, and other times the suspect takes an ex-spouse out of jealousy and control. Kidnapping for ransom is more prevalent around the world, especially in third world countries. Tourists and business people make good targets to kidnap alone or in small groups and then exchange the victim or victims for money. In these cases, it's more common for the victims to survive as the suspects do not make any money without updated proofs of life and a live exchange. In 1976, a trio of men, including two brothers, chose to try and strike it rich by pulling off one of the largest kidnappings in American history. This is the story of the Chowchilla mass kidnapping. 
On July 15, 1976, 11 days after America celebrated its 200th birthday, 26 children aged 5 to 14 and an adult bus driver were returning from a summer class trip to a swimming pool at the Chowchilla Fairgrounds in Central California. Around 4 p.m., the bus driver, Frank Edward, known as Ed Ray, was forced to slow the bus as he came across a van parked sideways on the road, forming a makeshift roadblock. Whether he realized it was a trap or not, Ed started to try and drive around the van when a man hopped out of the van and approached his window with a revolver pointed at him. The man asked Ed kindly to please open the door. Two more men appeared, one armed with a rifle. All three men were wearing nylon leggings over their heads to disguise themselves. With their guns pointed at Ed, he was forced to open the door and two of the men got onto the bus and ordered Ed out of the driver's seat and into another seat. The only unarmed suspect sat down to drive the bus while the other man kept his rifle trained on Ed. The suspect armed with a revolver got into the van and moved it so the bus could go by and then he drove the van behind the school bus for a few miles. The two vehicles arrived at a shallow dry ravine and the driver pulled the bus down into the ravine to hide it. A second van was waiting at the site, and the men ordered Ed and the children off the bus and into the back of the two vans. The children were made to jump from the bus to the vans, so they wouldn't leave any shoe prints on the sand of the dry riverbed. The suspects wanted to make it look like the children had just vanished. After all the children and Ed were in the vans, they hid the school bus with some brush and drove off in the two vans. Having pre-planned the entire crime, the suspects had painted the back windows of the van black and installed paneling inside the rear of the vans, making escape impossible and allowing them to travel without any other drivers being able to see into the vans. Meanwhile, back in Chowchilla, over a dozen set of parents were beyond worried. Their kids hadn't been dropped off after summer school and no one seemed to know where Ed, his bus, and the 26 children had gone. Ed Ray was 55 years old at the time and drove the bus part-time to supplement his ranch income. His wife worked at the local bank and everyone liked the barrel-chested, tough, but kind man. He was a quiet man but enjoyed joking with the children he saw each day and the children were said to love the punctual and hard-working bus driver. As we'll find out later, Ed could barely read or write but what he lacked in book smarts he made up for in street smarts and sheer strength. As night started to fall, a police sergeant located the bus in the dry riverbed. But just as the suspects had planned, it appeared to the police as if Ed and the children had vanished into thin air. Parents gathered at the police station, hunkered down for the long evening. They wanted to be the first to know if any news broke about their children. The phone lines were constantly busy as the parents who hadn't arrived yet called for constant updates and media outlets from all over the area, the state, and the country were calling to get the scoop on what was becoming the biggest news since the bicentennial celebration. Television newscasts broke into evening news coverage to inform people all over the United States about the missing children, driver, and bus. And when the bus was found without any children or Ed anywhere around, the story grew even more. Everyone was out looking for the Chowchilla children, but they were over a hundred miles away in those homemade prison vans. So we'll take a little break here from the story. As I'm writing out these stories, there's often a lot of minute details that I 
choose to not put into the story just because I think it bogs things down while I'm I'm trying to get to the facts of the story but I realize that by leaving out some of those details sometimes I create questions in people's minds so I, I try to cover some more of the finer details I guess in these little sidebars that I take so we'll talk more about the suspects plan later on but basically from what I read in the articles this this Ed Ray he drives this bus part-time now this is summer school so it sounded more as as if it was some type of a summer program because the city or the school district was providing funding for these kids to have basically activities during the day in the summer and part of that was Ed would pick them up in the morning and he would drop them back off in the afternoon and this is a pretty small community a farming and ranching community so everybody knew each other and you know at first thought today I think if if some 55 year old guy was driving a bus and it was full of school children and the bus goes missing there'd probably be some questions about the bus driver and maybe potentially his involvement in this case it definitely did not seem like anybody believed that ed could be involved he, he was the type of guy that everybody trusted he was a straight shooter he'd done this for years he was very punctual and that's actually what caused a lot of the concern right away he had actually just dropped off a couple kids at a bus stop prior to coming across this van so he was actually out actively dropping kids off it wasn't as if he brought all the kids back to a singular location where their parents would pick them up he would actually deliver each of these kids to their house uh, after the the summer uh, school program which that day was going to the swimming pool so he had actually just dropped off a couple kids and there's something about there was a joke or a bet going on between the these two kids and the bus driver about whether or not the the city would fund this summer school for another three weeks i guess this was supposed to be one of the last weeks of the summer school and then the kids would have an actual i guess summer vacation uh, for about a month and a half until school started up again but he had just dropped off these kids and it's after he does this drop off that he comes across the van and the van uh, and the, the bus gets hijacked so when he doesn't show up at his next stop it's a it's a domino effect the first parents expecting ed who's you know punctual within a minute every single day of dropping off their children when two minutes goes by five minutes goes by ten minutes goes by and then that again that domino effect of him dropping off or, or not dropping off other kids continues these parents get more and more concerned as obviously time is passing and nobody knows where where this bus is and this is obviously well before cell phones parents can't get a hold of their kids and as far as everybody knows this bus goes from dropping off these last two kids and then just disappearing into thin air and then when they find the bus i'm sure there had to have been tire marks you know if they're worried about footprints in the sand i'm sure there's tire marks from these vans but seeing a couple tire marks leaving the area of the bus is not the same as seeing 26 pairs of, of kids footprints walking around the bus and then 
and then these tire tracks so again to to law enforcement you're gonna have this this bus a, a couple pairs of tire tracks and no idea where these 26 kids and this bus driver ended up so the phone lines are ringing off the hook as parents are trying to call in to get updates this story is making national news at this point so all of these news outlets from all over the country are calling it was said that media people were flying into the area on last minute flights and paying taxi drivers upwards of a thousand dollars to get a, a ride out of san francisco to this chowchilla area to try to get a scoop on this story so you know this was a huge story when and we'll talk a little bit later here potentially why it's such a big story but it's not something that was quiet for a couple days and then all of a sudden hit the news this was from the almost the second that a kid was not dropped off on time because of ed's punctuality this became a story and it was after midnight when the van stopped driving and the children and ed found themselves in a quarry in livermore california Livermore is located just east of San Francisco, and while the drive from Chowchilla to Livermore should have only taken two hours, the suspects drove in a random pattern, so Ed and the other children couldn't memorize the turns and timing and lead police from Chowchilla to this hidden destination. Ed and the children were ordered out of the vans during the middle of the night and forced at gunpoint to go down a hole in the ground. The suspects had buried a semi-trailer beneath the ground and left just a hatch in the roof that they could close from above. Inside this trailer was mattresses, some water, some snacks, and some makeshift toilets. There were two large plastic pipes that allowed for some air exchange, but the conditions inside the trailer were dark, disgusting, and frightening for the children. The captives had not been given any food or water during their almost 12-hour drive in the hot and ill-equipped vans, so they went through the meager supply of water and food in a short amount of time. Meanwhile, after the bus was found, the search area grew and planes started doing aerial sweeps of the dry area around the bus. President Gerald Ford addressed the local police and parents and told them the federal government would reimburse any and all expenses in the search for the missing children. California in the 1970s was already a hotbed for major crime. The kidnapping of Patty Hearst, the exploits of the Manson family, the co-ed killer, and the Zodiac had the state very crime-weary. Just years prior, the last of that list, the unidentified Zodiac killer, who operated in the San Francisco area, had threatened to attack a school bus filled with children, and many wondered if he had made good on his promise. And... You know, it's difficult. I joked about it when I was down at CrimeCon because it was in Florida. But when I look at true crime cases, I try to cover them from all over the country. But there are so many big cases that originate in the three states of California, Texas, and Florida. And I know that they're also very populous states, so that's part of it. I mean, you are going to have more crime in Florida and, and California and Texas than you are in Wyoming, but it's just crazy that it, it seems like the the obscurity of the cases also increases when you're when you're talking about crimes out of these states. So California has just always had more than its fair share of serial killers, more than its fair share of obscure crimes. And in the 1970s, California was pretty much the epicenter of major true crime in the United States. So 
1976, as I mentioned, you had multiple serial killers that were active in the area. You had uh, exploits of, of the Manson family, including their attempt to assassinate President Ford. And then you had the Zodiac, and the Zodiac had his cryptic messages, and he had mentioned blowing up a school bus or shooting school children as they came off of a bus. So with the connection between the Zodiac and the school bus, you know, a lot of parents were concerned, could the Zodiac have, have decided to target this specific school bus, and would he be behind this abduction? Would he have killed all the children, killed the bus driver? I mean, just the worst fears were already circulating throughout the community just because of everything that had happened in, in this the six years prior to this crime occurring with all this other stuff going on. And by the morning of July 16th, many parents and police officials had not slept during the night and the hope that their children would be found alive was fading. As midday approached, the mood was only going from bad to worse. Around that time, after 12 hours in the buried prison, conditions for the children and Ed were also going from bad to worse as the roof of the trailer started to collapse from the weight of the dirt on top of it. Ed made the decision that they needed to try and escape and he enlisted the help of a 14-year-old boy named Michael Marshall to help with his escape plan. They piled up the mattresses in a tower until they could reach the opening that had been used to enter their underground confinement. The suspects had placed a heavy manhole cover over the top of the opening and then piled two 100-pound tractor batteries on top of the manhole cover before covering the depression with some dirt and debris. Sharing the Herculean workload, Ed and Michael took turns pushing against the manhole cover and moving it ever so slightly with each effort. Ed, after his lifetime of farm labor and manual tasks, was the perfect man for the job. After a lot of sweat and exertion, they were able to create an opening and use some wood from inside the trailer to create a lever and move the heavy manhole cover and batteries away from the opening. And so it's it, if you go online, you can actually find pictures of what it looked like inside this trailer. Now this was a 1960s, 1970s semi-trailer and it was actually a, a moving company trailer. So it's not as large and spacious as a semi-trailer uh, that you'd see on the roads today and there were 26 children and a full-grown man inside this trailer so these conditions were terrible to say the least and the suspects they had reinforced the roof of this trailer at least they thought ahead to do that knowing that these trailers are not really designed to have weight put on top of them but even with the supports there was extra weight that was added when this manhole cover and the tractor batteries were put on and then the dirt was kind of filled in and this weight actually caused the ceiling to buckle and start to collapse in on the trailer so if you can imagine you're already in this dark smelly confined area with 26 other humans and, and you're a child and all of a sudden this roof starts creaking and and collapsing in on yourself I mean, it just had to be absolutely terrifying and ed would say later that you know, initially they had talked about when they first went in there they talked about trying to escape but they were worried that these guys were sitting you know just outside the the entrance with these guns still and if they tried to make an escape they would be shot and i'm sure they were told something to that effect as well 
that if you try to escape, we'll, we'll shoot you. And so originally the, the plan was for the Ed and the children to just wait this out. And this that all changed when the roof started to collapse and, and they didn't hear anything for a while. They, they thought, well, there's a chance they could have just left us here and nobody's going to come to our rescue if this thing collapses completely in on us. We have to risk this. We have to try to get out. And you know, I read one article about Ed, and it made me think back to the the NFL players of this time period of the '60s and '70s. And it was there's a lot of NFL players that from this time period that never saw a weight room. They didn't need to. These were guys that they got all their strength from a, from working on farms or ranches from you know the time they were children uh it just natural raw strength and that's what ed had to him is just he was this barrel chested built from nothing but muscle uh, people would say he's the type of guy you look at and you instantly know you're not going to mess with him he was only like five seven five eight so it wasn't like he was this you know giant of a man but he was just put together so strongly from a life of hard labor that he you know just oozed strength out of uh, just looking at him and so when when you have somebody who's trying to move this probably at least 100 if not more pound manhole cover and 200 pounds of, of tractor batteries and you're not you're on this unstable mattress tower inside this trailer you know it, again it's just absolute whether it's sheer luck that this happened to be the driver and and he was able to with the help of of this 14 year old move the the cover off and and get it so that there was an opening for them to escape and it took a couple more hours of digging their way through the last couple feet of dirt and debris but the two heroes eventually found themselves in the middle of a working rock quarry Ed assisted Michael in getting out of the opening, and then the two men were able to get the rest of the children out, and finally Ed emerged from the hole. All 26 children and Ed were in rough shape, but alive. The haggard group approached the stunned quarry workers and told them what had happened. One of the quarry workers contacted the police, who arrived and heard the harrowing tale from Ed and the children about the abduction, the van ride, and their time underground. I think this was, according to the articles, it was like 7 or 8 o'clock at night. So this quarry, obviously, they must have had two shifts that worked here. Like a first shift and a second shift is my guess. And that's another reason why the suspects likely drove them around for 12 hours. Is even though it was only a two-hour drive from Chowchilla to Livermore, the abduction occurred at 4 p.m., so if they drove straight to the quarry, they would have got there at 6 p.m. Clearly, this is an active quarry. People are working when they come out at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. So it's possible this quarry was worked till midnight on the second shift, something like that. So these guys had to drive around until all of the crew had left the quarry during the overnight hours so that somebody wasn't didn't see them pull up in these two vans and, and put these 27 people underground. Uh, so, again, now these, these quarry workers, they're just going about their normal job, and all of a sudden, out of the ground, you know, there's these 27 or 26 children and adults come walking out. And I guess at first, the, the 
poor person that saw them thought that they were trespassers, like a school group that wandered onto the property looking, trying to get a closer look at the quarry or something like that. And so you actually hit some type of a trespasser alarm. And then once the other workers showed up to figure out what's going on, that's when they heard this story. And after being driven to a local jail, which was the most secure place people could think of to provide care for all the children, photos were taken and each child was provided with food and water. Officers wrote down the name, date of birth, the parents' names, and home address of each child, along with a statement about their ordeal. In what had to be a scary proposition, the children were asked to board another bus, this time with police escorts, and were driven back to Chowchilla to be reunited with their parents. The bus delivered the children to the Chowchilla Police Department, where their anxious parents met their children with tears and hugs. With the children safe and sound, police turned their attention to the crime and locating the suspects. No correspondence of any type had come in regarding a ransom for the children. The entire crime appeared to be a kidnap for ransom, but with the kids thankfully safe and sound, it would be harder for investigators to locate the kidnappers, as they hadn't even produced any demands so far. Although they didn't have any leads from any ransom request, investigators did have the buried trailer. Police immediately began digging up the trailer and eventually towed it out of its earthen grave so they could process it for evidence. The location of the buried trailer also provided investigators with some information about the possible suspects. The quarry was an active quarry and was secured at night via a gate. The suspects likely had ties to the quarry and a set of keys to get in and out. They would also know the quarry was empty during the overnight hours, which again is another reason why they had spent so much time driving the kids and Ed around before bringing them to the site. The quarry workers who were startled by Ed and the children were the ones to break open the investigation. They told investigators that the quarry's owner's son, a 24-year-old man named Frederick Newhall Woods IV, had keys to the quarry and had been seen burying something in the quarry in the area where the trailer was unearthed. And police are going to process this trailer, and the suspects did spend some time, as I mentioned, there was toilets, I think they built basically wood boxes over the the wheel wells in the back of the trailer, so there was an area for the, the children to go to the bathroom. Of course, it would have been terrible because there was nowhere other than this this void under the wood for the excrement and urine to go, so it would have smelled terrible in there but because they had done extensive work inside this trailer with the toilets and the ventilation system and cutting this hatch uh, the suspects had actually left a lot of fingerprints inside so it wasn't a perfect crime scene where there was no evidence but between the evidence they got from the trailer and then the follow-up they're going to do with the quarry owner's son uh, this investigation is going to actually be a, a rather easy one to solve. After a quick records check, they found that Frederick had been arrested along with two brothers, 22-year-old Richard Schoenfeld and 24-year-old James Schoenfeld, for motor vehicle theft. The three-man crew from that auto theft now had ties to the quarry and the right number of suspects to warrant closer investigation. At first glance, Frederick would not have been a prime suspect. He was the fourth or fifth generation of extreme wealth after his great-great-grandfather came to California during the gold rush and made it rich on land and railroad acquisitions. It was reported that in 1976, 
his family's land acquisitions, which included oil money, brought in around $80 million a year, which is almost $400 million a year today. Frederick lived rent-free in an apartment on his father's 80-acre ranch, but didn't have access to the almost $50 million that some claimed existed in a trust fund for him. He loved cars and made and lost money buying and selling cars he stored on his father's land. His business partners were the Schoenfeld brothers, and one day after Fred watched the movie Dirty Harry, he got an idea. In the movie Dirty Harry, the final scene involves a main protagonist hijacking a bus and then making his escape to a quarry. With access to a quarry, Fred got the idea of kidnapping a bus filled with children and holding them for ransom. Originally, they thought about asking for $2.5 million, but settled on $5 million as a fair ransom. Fred didn't need the money, but he wanted to pull off the perfect crime, and he had a friend who wanted to get into the movie business, and Fred thought the movie could be used to produce movies with his friend. And take a little break here and explain this a little bit more. So Frederick, obviously, and, and the Schoenfeld brothers themselves, too, they come from extreme wealth they they all lived in an area where these were big houses big ranches the families all had a lot of money and it was said they were spoiled rich kids but just as in today you'll have parents that raise children with extreme wealth that for whatever reason bad parenting or whatever it might be these kids do not develop any work ethic they do not develop any financial skills of their own and so the parents aren't just going to hand over a large amount of money to to their children so it sounds as if frederick's father made him take out loans basically borrow money from the family for these business ventures like the car and uh, like the cars and that kind of stuff and they owed a large amount of money back to their parents for these business loans that because they weren't educated in business and and i guess they would buy cars thinking they'd be worth money someday and eventually shoot the cars with guns break shoot out the windows because they were bored and ultimately they lost more money than they ever made in their businesses so they owed money to their parents so the, their parents were no longer buying them everything they wanted and this was the late 70s in california they wanted fancy cars they wanted spending money and they didn't have it and so this was their idea to go out and, and make a ridiculous amount of money in one perfect crime and then use that money to fund legitimate business ventures that would prove to their parents that they were capable of of making money and therefore they'd have access to to the money so they're not your typical criminals they're not doing this out of a, a desperation or a need for the money per se they just they want to have an insane amount of money because that's where they feel that they're due in life and so they're going to go about designing this crime around uh, obtaining this five million dollars so they did have some money obviously so fred got his hands on the vans he already had the guns and the men spent time making the vans into the mobile prisons and burying and outfitting the trailer in the quarry the rest of their time was spent tinkering around with cars and putting together the rest of the plan the first part of their plan actually went down almost exactly as they had planned 
However, originally they had wanted to use chloroform to knock out the driver, but ultimately they felt this wasn't necessary. But their roadblock, the bus hijack, the hiding of the bus, and the transfer of the driver and the children to the quarry all worked just as they had planned. What they didn't factor in was the overloaded phone network. With all the parent and media calls to the emergency services, the suspects were never able to get through to the police to inform them of their crime and their demands. The suspects, exhausted from the day of the crime and the night spent driving and hiding their captives, got frustrated that they couldn't get through to the police and decided to get some sleep and try again later. It appears they slept longer than intended, and when they awoke, the news was breaking that their captives had escaped and were in police custody. Obviously, calling for ransom at this point was pointless, and the men panicked. So, you know, they actually had started to write out a ransom note as well, and I don't know if they intended to somehow get this to the police. Now, you know, if I'm planning this crime, I guess my backup would be to leave that some type of a ransom letter or demands in the school bus because you know the school bus is eventually going to be found so that would be a fail safe just in case you couldn't get a hold of the police over the phone just so the police would understand what was going on and, and maybe inform them hey we're going to contact you like please leave a line open for us to get through to you uh, again they t they actually had a pretty ingenious plan they just didn't have an actual way to get in contact and then they're not intelligent enough to realize that the longer that this goes on a they could have their captives could have died but b you know the captives eventually are going to make some type of an escape attempt they didn't leave anybody there to guard the trailer or anything like that and they really couldn't because they picked an active quarry as a place to hide the trailer had they hid the trailer in the middle of the desert somewhere and left somebody to guard it you know as soon as the they came out they could have forced them back down into the trailer at gunpoint or something like that but their inability to further the plan thankfully worked out in, in the case of ed and the children being able to escape and the rest of their original plan was actually quite ingenious they were going to demand the ransom and they were going to drive to a random location along the Pacific coast and then they were going to demand that the ransom would be dropped off from a low-flying airplane at a location the airplane would find as it was flying up and down the coast. This meant the drop location could be anywhere in a 200-mile area and there would be no way law enforcement could set up surveillance on any one location. They'd even purchase an x-ray machine to check the ransom bags for bugs and other devices and crafted homemade body armor. Thankfully, the captives escaped before the decision to pay the ransom had to be made. So I guess their plan was somewhere along the PCH or, or somewhere out on the, the highway out there, they were going to pull off into a field or a clearing in the forest or something like that, set up some type of a strobe light indicator, and this was all going to be spelled out in the ransom demands, that when the plane sees this specific indicator, that's the point at which to drop the ransom bags containing the money and so this is not a singular location this isn't saying drive to the corner of 76th street in washington and put the money into a garbage bin there where police can set up surveillance and as soon as somebody shows up and grabs a garbage bag they can be arrested by the police this was such a large area that by the time this plane drops 
onto any given location, as soon as those guys have the bags and loaded into a vehicle, and within minutes, they're blending in with everything else and, and finding them is gonna be pretty much impossible. So they had this, this ingenious plan, but thankfully it never got to this point. And with their crime committed, but no ransom coming, the men fled to a warehouse where they had stashed the vans. There they made plans to go to a trailer in Northern California that would serve as their base of operations until they could make it to Canada. Fred and James followed through with these plans, but Rick got scared and he went home and told his dad what they had done. While the brothers weren't as rich as Fred, they were well off and his dad hired a lawyer who advised the family not to talk to anyone, and they never did. Fred left the country and rented a hotel room in Vancouver, Canada under a fake name. James initially planned to follow his friend, but got cold feet and decided to turn himself in. While he was driving to the police station to turn himself in, a patrol officer noticed his license plate and remembered it was associated with the wanted fugitive, and he stopped the vehicle and arrested James. Fred, while waiting for his friend at the hotel in Canada, wrote a letter to his buddy in the movie business. The letter was traced back to Vancouver, and two weeks after the kidnapping, Fred was arrested by Canadian authorities and handed over to the FBI. All three men were willing to plead to the kidnapping for ransom charges, but authorities wanted to charge them with infliction of bodily harm during the kidnapping. The combination of charges would mean life in prison without parole, so they took the bodily harm charges to trial and lost. And so this is something where just the kidnapping for ransom, if, if you conduct a kidnap and ransom operation, whether you're successful or not, you're looking at life with the possibility of parole. If somebody dies during this kidnapping and ransom, it's a, a capital crime, it's a death penalty crime. But in between is this, if you cause bodily harm to anybody during the kidnapping, it's life without parole. So depending on whether anybody's injured, not injured, or killed changes the penalties associated with the crime. So the prosecutors are going to look at it and say these kids, because of climbing in and out of, of the trailer and, and, and their time spent in the van and the trailer, they, they suffered some minor injuries, we're going to charge them with both. So they get charged with both. They were willing to plead to one but not to the other because the combination will result in them being in life in prison without parole. However, this case went to appeal, and the appellate courts ruled that the statutory definition of bodily harm was not met in this case, as the children over only suffered superficial physical injuries and the men were resentenced to life, but with the possibility of parole. And this is difficult because, yeah, if you do read a lot of statutory definitions, in Minnesota there's bodily harm, substantial bodily harm, greater body harm, and death. And each definition requires you to meet a different criteria where like bodily harm is just any demonstrable injury. Substantial bodily harm is, I guess it would be more of a serious style of injury. Greater bodily harm usually results in the loss of function of a limb or major serious injury. And then obviously there's death. So this definition must've been pretty vague and the appellate court looked at it and said it wasn't designed to cover cuts and bruises. Now, these kids are gonna be psychologically traumatized, but that's also not built into the statute. So the appellate courts are gonna look at it and say, sorry, you didn't meet physical bodily harm in this crime, therefore you just had kidnapping for ransom, which is a 
life with the possibility of parole crime. And Ed Ray received an award for his actions during the kidnapping, and it was said that he held a special place in many of the children's hearts, and he visited them even into their adulthood and until he passed away in 2012. The Chowchilla Park where he picked the kids up from was renamed Edward Ray Park, and every February 26, which was Ed's birthday, is known as Edward Ray Day in Chowchilla. Richard Schoenfeld acquired parole in 2012 after serving 36 years of his sentence. His brother James served 39 years before being paroled in 2015, and Frederick Woods IV was denied parole 19 times before being granted parole on August 17, 2022. He was 71 years old and has spent the last 46 years in prison. The decision to release Fred was a controversial one, with the governor of California requesting the parole be denied. According to numerous sources, Fred has not taken responsibility for his actions, has been caught breaking prison rules, and has illegally run businesses from prison and accessed some of the roughly $122 million in the trust fund that was held for him since the time of his crimes. Several of the child victims suffered a variety of mental health issues after the crime, and many still harbor fears to this day. They successfully sued the kidnappers in 2016 for an undisclosed amount of money. The 1976 Chowchilla kidnapping remains the largest single abduction case involving children in U.S. history. Thanks to the bravery and determination of Ed and the children, this heinous crime ended without any loss of life. I wish I had met Ed Ray, because he sounds like the type of person we need more of in today's world. But that is the story of the Chowchilla mass kidnapping. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.